Houston, the host of the podcast, The Checkup. Today's episode is a continued conversation with Rick Abbott from Primera Blue Cross. We had a conversation October 10th for World Mental Health Day in an episode where we ended up focusing a lot on addiction. We heard a lot of comments from a lot of different people and realized we had a unique opportunity to continue a conversation that not only would perhaps help our fellow humans, but shed some light on new treatment options that are available and help to continue to reduce stigma around addiction. Rick Abbott is back with me today as is Stephanie Papes. She is the CEO and co-founder of Boulder Care. They are a digital treatment program, and I am really excited for you to hear from her about new solutions to some problems that have been around a while. Thanks so much for having me, Danielle. Welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. So I, um, prior to founding Boulder Care, uh, spent most of my career in healthcare and um, really passionate about innovation from multiple angles, certainly technology as we're doing now, um, but also new payment reform and public policy. Started my career in DC uh, working on healthcare reform and just seeing so much on the horizon, um, so much opportunity in our country to expand access and quality of care. So um, was in venture capital investing and you know I think entrepreneurship and venture capital, some of the most powerful ways we have to affect change very quickly in a very large industry. And at Boulder, that's uh, really where we're focused on addiction treatment, specifically the opioids. So I will start at least a little bit to toot your horn for you because Rick has already shared with me that you're quite humble. You are very driven, uh, very accomplished and youthful. You were recognized by Forbes last year as being one of the 30 under 30. Congratulations. Thank you so much. What's driving you? Because that's that's driven. Well, just really fortunate, uh, certainly Rick, but everyone that I work with has been incredibly helpful in um, kind of coming together to solve the problems we're driven to solve by mission um, from diverse perspectives. So. It, um, age, certainly um, different uh, backgrounds, walks of life. Our team has people from research and academia, uh, as well as those from engineering and product outside of healthcare. And I think collectively um, being aligned on the singular focus to make an impact um, and change people's lives is what kind of brings us all together. So very, very fortunate. Certainly what's driving you. Absolutely. Rick, welcome back. Thank you, excited to be here. What drives you? Uh, it's interesting, life experiences and the unique role I have right now. So I've been very open on our prior podcast. We've done two of them. Obviously very excited about those who have been listening. Um, but I think my experiences seeing what behavioral health has done um, to not just those in my family, but to those around me and as we drive around Seattle um, is enough to inspire me to want to actually have a solution. Luckily, Primera has trusted me to lead a product and market solutions team that has the ability to actually impact change. So I don't just have to talk about the problem and help people see it. I can reach out to people like Stephanie and say, can we work together to actually make something that will actually impact people's lives? So I have a very lucky role, but I'm also someone who just like many other people has seen what this can do. And I'm committed to actually trying to solve it. Everyone knows someone. Mm -hmm. And I think you said it 
first and maybe best. It's just whether or not you're willing to talk that's, about it. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about opiate addiction, just to lay some groundwork for people here. We're talking about things like it's the leading cause of death for people under 50. From 1999 to 2017, six times more deaths in overdoses, which is a staggering number. I believe your statistics from the CDC are 700,000 deaths in the, what's the time period on that? Yep, the same time period you quoted and about okay. 130 deaths per day, 70,000 last year. Right. So when we talk about catastrophes and things that we attach catastrophic kinds of deaths to, the Vietnam War had 50, 58,000, a little more than 58,000 deaths, 147,000 deaths in Afghanistan in the time period of uh, since 2011. On 9-11, just under 3,000 people died. And yet the deaths we are seeing from opiates are staggering and not enough change in the industries connected to really make a dent. We're sitting back on our laurels. We are. And one of the stats I quote, it's a small plane crashing every day. If one crashes a year, it gets an enormous amount of attention. We are connected to the television and watching with sadness and horror. Absolutely. And I think I'm glad the first podcast we did really addressed one of the things that sits at the core is stigma and not enough people being willing, open and honest about where they are because they fear judgment or because uh, we may lack enough empathy or compassion to help them. Um, So I think we are past the point where we can sit idly. Uh, As I said last time, I think we owe it to humanity to actually do something about it. And I think it's not just those large carriers like a Primera or United or Aetna that can. It's entrepreneurs who view the world a little bit differently and can augment places where we may be blind. And I think the longer we can bring, uh, excuse me, the more often we can bring together carriers and pioneers like Stephanie to actually solve the problem, the more quickly we'll be able to do so. Yeah. How did we get here? Maybe you can talk a little bit. Want to go first? So opioid addiction, it's sort of a, a decade plus of, of a perfect storm. So um, confluence of factors, certainly drug cartels and more kind of available supply of things like heroin and now synthetic opiates like fentanyl coming into the country. Uh, you know, you've probably read a lot about the pharmaceutical companies and the role that they may have played. Um, a lot of marketing to physicians claiming that um, Oxycontin and other painkillers were not addictive, which we know is certainly not the case. Um, Big fat lie. Can we call it that? It, there was definitely some <laughs> <laughs> some mistruths, and uh, you know, I, I think the um, the making pain a vital sign was a really important piece. If you're a well-intentioned physician and you've got a patient who's in pain, and you know that you're being um, critiqued based on their uh, comfort level, right. and you think you have a drug that is safe. Uh, I think a lot of people with good intentions and we just ended up in a very dangerous place. And now that is perpetuated over time with a number of other regulatory um, and kind of predictable economic incentives. But there is a severe treatment gap. And as you quoted, um, loss of life, loss of life that's entirely preventable. Yeah. 
which is really what's so tragic. So there's one point that I want to hop back to just a little bit. You mentioned this pain measurement with with providers. And when I learned about that point, I could remember back to being in a doctor's office where the question started, what's your pain on a scale of zero to 10? What I didn't realize were that some of these standards that providers had been using as part of their assessment was trying to manage a person's pain down to zero, even though most of us know that sometimes zero is just not an option. You're going to be uncomfortable for a while. So the so the number of scripts started from there. The yeah. horses got out of the barn. Well, in all healthcare, you know, there's always trade-offs, and people may pref- have preferences about mm-hmm. you know the, their quality of life that they can talk about with their physicians. And yeah, you know, when you have um, now chronic pain patients actually in this sort of pendulum swing, yeah. um, who are unable to get medications that they really do need, or that they've been on for so long that now they're experiencing severe withdrawal and discomfort. Um, those are patients that may not identify as being addicted right. in the same way, but they are experiencing the very same thing as others who have stopped taking opiates and really need support. Yeah. So let's talk about what support treatment looks like today, mm-hmm. or maybe to the point that we're coming today. Yes. I'll say a couple different things. So uh, a large problem is out of network. Um when people need to go through the treatment to actually become detoxified or go through the psychological or psychiatric treatment to actually understand their addiction and how to manage it, et cetera. Um, to address both of those, on the one side, a large number of the facilities that do the work are out of network. And they are compensated in a way where the more times you see them in a fee-for-service model, the more revenue they can generate. Some of them go so far as to not bill members which the member views as removing a financial barrier to treatment. But the reason they don't do it is because if we found out um, what they were doing, we would take action or so would the OIC, the government, et cetera. So by not billing the member, because a $20,000 bill would catch your attention, you'd wonder what happened to your insurance, they're able to hide. And then on the psychiatric or clinical social worker side or psychology side, not enough options are available in our network. We have a problem with access. So those are two things that incongruence uh, drive a lot of this problem. So luckily, uh, some people actively seek treatment, but nine and 10 don't for any sort of addictive issue. And those who sit there and silent suffer are basically left to their own devices. So we don't have enough options. And we'll talk to a little bit about what we're doing here. But if we can provide safe, effective ways to allow them to go through that and potentially address some of the stigma by giving them a private way to do so, that solution might help with the two things I just highlighted while also bring additional uh, help to humanity. So um, that's why I'm excited to talk about our solution. But I think right now we are doing the best we can with a limited set of resources whose incentives are not well aligned. Right. I would love to share just two quick separate examples of people that I reached out to through my social network who were willing to share about their struggles. And if you think that you don't know anyone, go pose the question, right? Um, I was surprised by the number of people who responded and some of the people who did, because I had I had no idea. One of the people mentioned that um, 
likely treatment would have not even been something that he could have done or accessed had his dad not been in a position to pay completely out of pocket for a detox inpatient program that was thousands of dollars, but left the detox program to really have to try to figure it out on his own. This was a decade ago, so I think we've learned some things in the process, but there's a lot of gaps that I think you're gonna talk about in that spectrum. The other was someone who was more reliant on a nonprofit kind of approach and didn't have that kind of financial support. And her talking about what it was like to even have an assessment. You have to walk in at least twice to even get an assessment. After the assessment, you wait months for a bed. At what point are people just falling off the ladder because it's too far up and it's too frustrating and it's easier to stay high? So when we talk about what Primera identified, let's go to that place. When you guys really have data that shows the gaps and the recurring claims, how did you identify those objectives? We obviously do a lot of work on both our fully insured and self-insured side to understand trend. And I think as we started to realize that there were more people who needed treatment than we could reasonably accommodate, and that most employers were ill-equipped to advise them where to go, we knew we had some sort of problem. The answer is not asking more facilities to build more facilities. That was not going to really help because if people are unable to access them in a way where they feel comfortable, let alone be certain that those facilities are compensated in a way that drives better outcomes, we're not really helping. So Stephanie really summarized it well when she said, we thought there might be a way to where we could use technology and frankly, entrepreneurial spirit in a little bit more effective way. Those are things that as much as we strive to actually have, there will always be others who might be able to bolster our ability to support people. So I actually proactively found Stephanie specifically. It was actually on LinkedIn um, based on her esteem and her accolades, but also what she had just started. Uh, which was a way to take access in a, uh, to a virtual platform and do so in a way that did not lose any effectiveness, did not lose any safety, and frankly, probably increase the probability that we could drive that nine and 10 number down. So the choice was really, do we want to invest in the traditional brick and mortar approach and hope things change? Or do we want to take a chance with a company that actually is transformative and allow us to see what might happen there? So that was what led me to reach out. It was about a year ago exactly. Uh, Luckily, as you've probably seen and will continue to see, our values and our missions align really well. Um, When I met Stephanie, they were somewhat pre-product, but they had an incredible medical team who absolutely wowed one of our medical directors here. Um, The research they had done, the way they were able to architect a vision, and the way, frankly, they were going to execute on it one way or another um, was really inspiring. And since then, 12 months later, we're sitting at this table. I'll let her explain a little bit about how Boulder Care came to be. But it was really just trying to find someone that could view the problem in a different way and help us solve it in a different way. And I'll I'll, go ahead. I was just going to ask, before we talk about how your program works, what does what we would maybe think of as that traditional treatment program, brick and mortar, what's the success rate on that? Either one of you. There's just so many different flavors of addiction treatment. And it's been sort of the wild, wild west for a long time. Anybody can do anything? 
Maybe. Unfortunately, there are, um, you know, facilities that hold themselves out as addiction treatment programs, but they aren't offering what's really the gold standard evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder, which is medication-based treatment. So if you're a rehab facility or an outpatient program not offering um, medications like buprenorphine, that's a huge gap. And not only are many, I think two thirds, still not offering medication, they're actually not allowing it within the walls of the facility um, or telling patients that they're not really in recovery if they're taking these medications, which is harmful. Because the difference between someone who has access and is taking those medications versus not, there were some really big numbers attached to the likelihood that someone would stay clean. Absolutely. Can we so, call it that, staying clean? I want to be mindful of my, are some of my words a little antiquated <laughs> when it comes to addiction and treatment? Danielle, it is just so incredible that you asked the question. And <laughs> so that's what we do every day is ask the question. Yeah. And what we've kind of come to on the term clean is, you know, we have a couple of rules of thumb. One is we always use person first language. So we say okay. things like person with substance use disorder or with opioid addiction rather than addict, right? And so I think okay. that's one helpful framing. And the other is for words like clean or dirty, would mm. we use these words if we were talking about another medical condition like diabetes? We probably wouldn't say someone's blood was dirty, if not, you know, insulin levels um, at a healthy level. So I, I think that's a, an amazing question that just shows we're all trying to combat stigma and kind of reframe the way that we're thinking about addictive disease. So thank you. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, when, when I think about what are the ways that all of us can be part of a solution, obviously, again, what we've been doing isn't working. And what we see outside our walls and what we see in our community, it demands us to do something different or just say, let's just send people to prison or just expect that they're going to fail. And I don't think that's a good option. And that's why these things really will change. Yeah. So, and, and to your question about medication or buprenorphine, you're right, it's absolutely striking. Um, the death rate just by taking the drug at all um, cut in half wow. right away. So it's sort of a miracle drug in many ways in that it's protective against overdose. Uh, if you're taking Suboxone, it has Narcan or uh, Naltrexone actually in the dose so that if you are to overdose, you will not um, be at risk of, of um, fatality. And over time, the longer you're taking medication and in treatment, the higher likelihood of recovery up to the point of at about three years when you have an 85% plus lifelong rate of sustained recovery. So there was an interview that you did with a doctor, Dr. Wilson, and I found it online. It was a really incredible interview that really dug deep into things like prescriptions and, and outcomes. One of her quotes from that article around pharmacy was, if it's so easy for, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, if it is so easy for a cartel to deliver heroin to your door, then we should be able to get prescriptions to you to help you beat your addiction. Yeah. We say sometimes, you know, people aren't failing, they're being denied success, opportunities to succeed. Barriers. So many barriers. And you, you two spoke about it a bit on your last episode, but we look at the patient journey, you know, as um, a services company trying to solve problems with both technology, services, whatever we can do to make the patient experience better. And from start to finish, from the day that you are as a patient seeking treatment um, to every step of, you know, getting into your program and staying in it over time, we know this is a chronic disease and that the brain takes time to heal. Um, six months is when you really start to see uh, all of the you know, medical effects of staying on buprenorphine. 
but we just aren't getting people there because it's too challenging in a brick and mortar environment to, uh, to remain in treatment. The barriers are quite high. And can the brain heal? If someone's been in addiction phase, can the brain go back to what it was pre-addiction? It's what's really incredible about 20 plus years of research now, we actually do have data to be looking at those things. And we're just not leveraging all of the advancements in medical science that we've made. So we have PET scans that show what the brain looks like with prolonged opioid use. And when you look at these images and you see how much has happened, um, just physiologically, the fact that we are telling people that 30 days should completely cure them or that talk therapy in a church basement is a medical treatment, it's just not accurate. And so the kind of beauty of having these objective um, sources of clinical data and peer-reviewed literature is that we do have answers. And you know, if we follow the evidence and um, actually get people the care they need, they do get well. Is it safe to say that the treatment protocols that are mostly being used today are just far behind of what the evidence shows? Absolutely. So uh, Rick very kindly um, complimented our clinical team, and they truly are the most extraordinary group of people. Um, and they have all the answers. You know, they've been doing this work for 15 plus years in challenged care settings. Um, and, you know, one of our kind of seminal articles, uh, a peer reviewed paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine, written by our colleagues, just kind of outlines on a very practical basis, you know, here are the 10 things that we are doing um, in practice today and why they're actually harmful to patients. So for example, um, urine drug testing has been used historically as a way to you know, glean whether a patient is taking their medication appropriately or whether they're still using opiates or other substances. And instead of using those results as a strategy to help tailor treatment, we're telling patients you're fired from this program because this one drug test didn't um, show what we thought it would. And that's just not how we treat, again, any other disease. The barriers are many. And, you know, we talked a little bit about cost, and that's a huge barrier. It's becoming more and more common that really, if you are wealthy or have a family who owns a home, treatment is accessible for you, but maybe not so much if that's not your story. What are some of the other barriers, the things that people may not readily think of? Because I do think that there is an idea out there that people who are in addiction mode in the midst of their disease are not wanting the help, that it's simply a, a decision they're making. What yeah. would you say to that? Sort of mapping back to the patient journey piece. Uh, upfront is stigma. It's just not the same to say I have diabetes as it is to say I struggle with substance use disorder. Clinically, it's the same. But unfortunately, when you say that to someone, the way they act is different. And that's obviously something we'll continue to try to address. The financial piece we discussed, which is okay, I have to leave for seven to 35 days and go somewhere potentially far away. Can I sustain the bill that's coming from that when I get home? By the way, knowing, which is the third piece, that my employer, yes, I'm gonna have five weeks away, they don't cover my salary the way it would need to be to keep my home, keep food on the table, et cetera. And then finally, once I've gone through all of that, when I come back, how are you going to treat me? Everyone's going to know I was gone for a month. I might even be willing because I'm so courageous to talk about why I was gone for a month. But will I be treated the same? Will I, in my work, will it be given the same level of quality and review that others receive? Or will I have to get through an additional barrier because of who I am? All of these complexities exist. And then there's the fact, which we discussed, that actually the system itself 
the facility was rewarded for me going there, not for whether I'm better another month from now, six months from now and a year from now. So while I, they may have done really, really well for that 28 days that I was there, they have no incentive to really care how I'm doing now. And hopefully they gave me a referral to someplace here locally now that I'm back home that's going to help me continue that care, but it's probably not coordinated in any way. And how can I be sure that care is relevant as opposed to what worked for the past month? That's probably a quarter of the barriers that exist. And even that, I totally get when someone says, not worth it. Life's not great right now, but it seems a lot scarier in that future. So I'm just going to kind of stay where I am. And I think we can chip away at some of those over time. The beauty of the solution we're about to discuss is it hits kind of all of those. Um, but until we can actually solve for at least a few of those, this problem will persist on an ongoing basis. So on that note, since we have laid the foundation for what things look like today, we've talked about opiate addiction, let's call this part one. Okay. And then we will have a part two where we can really talk about what does it look like to do something different? Perfect. If you are inspired by our episodes today, we would love to hear from you. We're at Propel Checkup on Twitter, but you can also find Rick, Stephanie, and myself all on LinkedIn. You can follow the checkup on iTunes and on YouTube. But if you or someone that you know wants help, we would direct you to the Primera website for behavioral health. That link is here in this graphic and also at daniellehouston.com. Thank you for being part of a conversation to change the stigma around addiction. And thanks for listening to The Checkup.